Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Today, we're excited to welcome alumna Quinn O'Brien to the show. Quinn is a graduate of the Emory College of Arts and Sciences, where she earned a BA in religion before going on to earn an MFA in creative writing from Goddard College and a master's of liberal arts from Stanford University. She worked at Google as both content writer and strategist and senior content strategist before founding O'Brien Group, a boutique consulting and training firm headquartered in Atlanta. Grounded in the methods of design thinking, they offer an array of custom services, including innovation labs, visioning sessions, tools training, and leadership experiences, and are a proud partner of Google Cloud, Google for Education, and Grow with Google. So with that, welcome to the show, Quinn. Thank you so much, Shannon. It is absolutely my true pleasure to be here. So we're going to dig a bit into your background at Google and your experience in founding and leading your own consulting firm. But for the benefit of Emory students and staff who are here today, I'd like to start this discussion of your innovator's journey much earlier. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your time at Emory. I would love to. You know, I loved being at Emory. Um, it, was, it was a great choice of school for me because it's a school that has a lot of different there's a lot of different things. There's a lot of different groups you could be part of, uh, a lot of different things that you could study in. And um, over my four years, you know, I think I had three or four different majors and <laughs> a lot of different groups of friends, but it was a place that I could explore and really come into adulthood in a, um, in a somewhat contained environment. Um, so I, I um, often recommend to people to go to Emory. You know, if I hear that somebody's teenager is thinking about it, I'm like, oh, you should do it. You're going to love it. <laughs> it's a great school. So It's funny that you started with lots of different things you can study and lots of different groups you can get involved with because this seems to be a, a through line with a lot of innovators journeys, right? And also uh, a lot of folks I know who work in innovation talk about how many times they change their major. So uh, we're gonna pick up that thread uh, you know, later as well. But um, I'm curious as a student, would you say that you were, uh, and you may have answered this obliquely, um, really sort of immersed in your field of study once you found it, really interested in kind of preparing for professional endeavor beyond academia or somewhere in between? Um, I was very much immersed in my studies to the point that I lost touch with the reality of having to earn a living after college. Um, so what happened is that I just fell in love with the study of religion. Um, I, and not that I was particularly religious, but I thought it was fascinating. And um, I had actually been raised in a non-religious household. So all of this was new to me and very interesting. And so I just loved it and I studied everything and I... Um, I don't think I ever declared it, but I had the credits for a minor in women's studies. So I was very interested in that intersection and um, spent really my last two years at Emory just completely immersed in that. And I remember being in my senior seminar last semester, it was the Abraham and Sarah story. So it was a small group of maybe 10 people. And I looked around the room and I was like, well, what are you guys going to do after college? And they said, we're going to be pastors. I was like, oh, that sounds horrible. I don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> 
So they had a career path, but I did not. And so um, I had to quickly figure something out. And I, um, so my senior year, I guess after that awakening, um, I decided that I would become a writer. And, right. and I uh, went over to a local weekly magazine that doesn't exist anymore, but um, it was called Etc. And I asked if I could be an intern. And they graciously said yes. And so I became, uh, that's how I became a writer. Um, but it, it definitely took a little shaking up and a little, uh, oh yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna have to earn a living at some point. Um, right. Not, not as a pastor. So that's interesting. One of the, the uh, I think, a lot of the students we speak with at the Hatcher, one of the themes we hear a lot is that students have questions about transitioning from student life to professional life and um, really kind of how to go about managing that moment and finding work. Did you have difficulty in translating lessons learned from your studies uh, and your extracurriculars to the professional world or were you able to package that in a way that you were able to get that work pretty quickly? Okay, my, I, let me just say, I don't recommend anything that I did. <laughs> I okay, will tell so, my story. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, it's one of the things I say most often when people say, so how do you get to run an innovation center? I'm like, ooh, yeah, don't ask me. Right, like ask somebody else that can give you better advice. It's like no, no, get a PhD in French literature, and then and their eyes go lots. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so um, so here's how my transition went, and I, you know, there were some parts of it that were really fantastic, but um, I have found that later in my life, uh, maybe ten years in. Uh -huh. The things that I studied at Emory um, became very useful. The ability mm -hmm. to think deeply, mm -hmm. write well, and read well um, have been crucially important. But for a while, they weren't because um, I decided that Atlanta was not interesting enough and so that I was going to try to move to San Francisco. Hmm. And I got an internship at... Um, what was then the premier lesbian magazine, Janu, which is now I think called Curve. Oh, and okay. so I got this internship in San Francisco and my sweet parents agreed to support me for three months so that I could go do this. Um, and, and so that launched me to San Francisco and the internship was a mess and nobody knew what to do with me. And um, so uh, th that part wasn't great, but then eventually my mother called and said, you know, we can't keep doing this. And, and um, so I got my first job. And um, I thought if I worked at the San Francisco, so the San Francisco, there were two papers. There was the Chronicle and the Examiner. Mm -hmm. And they had another organization called the Newspaper Agency that was like the operational center of both papers. And I thought if I got a job there that I could maybe work my way up. So I got a job in customer service answering the phone. And um, I, so people would call and they would say, you know, my paper is wet or missing. <laughs> and my job was to try to placate them and then send a, a page to the driver to go back and deliver their paper. So at that moment, I felt a real dissonance with the work that I had done in <laughs> because 
I was not well suited to sit in a cubicle and answer repetitive questions all day long. Um, coming from an environment where people were nurturing my intellect all the time and I was engaged in fascinating conversations about the meaning of life um, to a workplace where I was expected to just kind of continually repeat the, the same things was very um, disheartening. And um, another thing, and I, I'm sorry to tell my um, other Emory students and grads this, but in California, nobody had ever heard of Emory. Hmm. So, and I don't think that's necessarily the case now, mm -hmm. but this was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had graduated from this prestigious university and sort of expected that people knew that and I got out there um, and, and people really didn't. Mm -hmm. um, but it was an Emory, okay, there's actually two good stories here. So I'm gonna tell you both of them, but I'm gonna tell you, I'll tell you in order, but I want you to just put a pin in the fact that there was an Emory alum who was my mentor and who actually taught me how to be a writer out of California. Um, so, um, so I had this terrible job and, and then in order, I was trying, but I was trying to get, you know, trying, trying, trying to get my foot in the door and get a real um, job in media or something. And um, so there's this gentleman who claimed to be named Dexter, who said he had funding. Okay, can I just say that all good stories start with, so there was this gentleman <laughs> who claimed to be named Dexter. Like, <laughs> I know we're off to a good start. <laughs> oh, Dexter, I wonder what became of him. So, so Dexter said that he had gotten some investment money to start a new television show and that it would serve the LGBTQ community of San Francisco. And um, I was part of this group of interns that he sort of recruited. Um, and it was very heady. You know, we weren't getting paid, but... Um, but it was real and he did have some money. And so for a little while, it was this very glamorous thing with all these other young people. And, you know, I had like a stylist and we would go to clubs and we would show up in a limousine. And for my 22nd birthday, we all went to this Mexican restaurant, had margaritas and a big meal. And it was just like very, very glamorous. And then our first episode was scheduled to air. So I was a writer for the show, but I was also on air. And um, our first episode was scheduled to air and we were gathered at this boutique little um, theater in San Francisco to watch the screening together and it was all super glam and one of the one of my other interns stood up and said so why isn't this actually on the air and it turned out that what had happened is Dexter ran out of money and that the show never aired <laughs> so it was a bit of a letdown for us. Um, and Dexter soon left town and we've never heard from him since. But we had this group of people who had a passion and a vision for starting this TV show. We called it QTV. And we did get on the air, uh, really just, um, just with volunteer effort. And, wow. um, and I worked on QTV for a year and a half. And other people worked on it for, I think they just retired it, you know, maybe five years ago. Yeah, um, oh. so there are, there are episodes on file in the San Francisco Public Library um, of those early days and pictures on my Facebook page, which you can see, and it launched several careers um, of, you know, people who became uh, journalists and anchor people and that kind of thing. Um, so that was kind of my first job. It was pretty cool. 
Okay, so let's go back to the pin you placed and the Emory right. alum who, who helped you. Okay, so all of my jobs overlap. I, I, this is the first time in my life I've only had really one job. Um, so I'm doing all these things. I'm still answering the calls. I'm still doing this TV show. And I go and I put in my um, resume for this little newspaper called the Noe Valley Voice in San Francisco, which is a mm -hmm. lovely neighborhood newspaper. Yep. And um, I didn't have much hope, but I was really not succeeding in my efforts to become a writer, you know? And I get a call from Sally Smith, the founder and editor of the Noe Valley Voice. And she's like, do you know I went to Emory too? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was living on the same street she had lived on when she moved to San Francisco at my age from Emory. Huh. And I think she just decided to take me under her wing. Um, I worked for her for 12 years. Um, and she taught me how to write articles, how to interview people, how to, um, I became a section editor. I was the news editor. I was the classifieds manager. I did pretty much everything over the years at that newspaper. Um, but that was my rocky, not recommended introduction into the workforce for memories. <laughs> right. Well, it's funny. It sounds like um, this career launched or that show launched many careers, not only for the different people, but maybe many different careers for you in a way too, right? Like it sort of gave you bits and pieces of many of the things you did later. Certainly the endurance of somebody in the startup world uh, who has to try and fail and keep lots of jobs going at once and lots of irons in the fire and taught you to write and present and you know maybe lots of the things you use later on. That's a great insight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't really thought about that, but I think that's absolutely true. And it, it took a lot of pluck to go around with this enormous, and cameras were enormous then. Yeah. Um, and Clarence was very grumpy. He was the camera guy. And so we went, you know, having to go around and be like, what's it like, you know, doing it, doing whatever it is you're doing on the street right now. And um, it did, it did prepare me for um, a lot of things, including um, disappointment and the realization that startups come and go. I mean, I, Dexter did have money. I, he just misspent it. I mean, right. Startups, right. 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 Um, well, so let's go back to us uh, for a second about, you know, this mini careers idea and the trajectory of things. So you worked as a writer uh, at the, the local paper where you got to, you know, wear lots of different hats. What's interesting to me is the decision to go back and do an MFA. Um, I have a brother uh, who did an MFA at Iowa. Uh, it's a degree that I've often considered myself because probably like lots of folks in innovation, I've considered lots of degrees. Uh, still am determined to get my uh, master watchmaker of the 21st century at some point. So, you know, because this is equally practical. Um, so, uh, but, it, you know, so often uh, one of the big decisions uh, that goes into committing to an MFA program is around earning a credential that helps you to get published and really helps you get a, a foot in the door as a writer. And yet you are working as a writer uh, for, for many years. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about what motivated that decision to return to school, but also any sort of unanticipated benefits of the MFA degree. Absolutely. Oh, the MFA was one of the best things I've ever done. But I honestly, Shannon, I did it out of desperation. Hmm. Because you may recall <laughs> a recession that we had in 2001. 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yes, I had had a nice little career trajectory um, humming along in my 20s after that rocky start. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote for a number of papers. I won a couple of awards. Um, I also got some really lucrative part-time marketing work um, that was kind of keeping me humming. So things were going great. And, and I actually made a move back to Atlanta for a couple of years in mm -hmm. like 99. And then made a fateful decision just a couple of months after 9-11 to move back to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And the San Francisco I had been in before had so many jobs. It was, you know, they're practically, you know, hire you off the street. And the San Francisco I returned to did not. Uh -huh. um, my sister got me a job selling glitter spray at the Macy's uh, counter in Union Square. I just love this is this is like a master class in the side hustle that it takes <laughs> to really get somewhere in the long run. Like, it, you know, so often people say, "Ooh, how did you get where you where you are? And there's an assumption of a kind of trajectory from, you know, focus to study to professional advancement. And uh, people forget that there are steps along the way that include things like guys named Dexter and glitter spray. You know? <laughs> so this is great. <laughs> so true. Well, and you know, that glitter spray job was a nightmare. I hated it, but I heard dialogue I had never heard before in my life uh, working there. And I took notes. And so my book, uh, Glitter, spray, glitter Girl, um, was based on the dialogue that I actually wrote down um, and brought to my MFA uh, program. And I showed my first teacher, and, and she was like, okay, well, let's start building a story around this. So, but I'm kind of jumping ahead. So, um, so I, I did that for a bit. I was not very successful at glitter spray sales. Um, I think just the lack of passion, really. Um, but I left and I got a job as a receptionist at an architecture firm run by a rageaholic named Rodney. Um, I had some other job. It was terrible. I couldn't get a professional job again. You know, I had been a newspaper editor and I couldn't. And so finally I was just, ready to throw in the towel and I thought well okay if I can get into an MFA program I can get student loans and that would give me enough breathing room that I could spend some time actually honing my craft become a better writer um, I could get a little part-time freelance here and there keep get me through and um, and maybe that would do it and so that's what I did and it was fantastic because I was right. I, I'm, I'm going to pay those student loans probably until I'm in the grave, but um, but um, I gave myself a good year and a half to actually spend becoming a writer in a, in a you know, to become a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. And um, I and I wrote my novel. And about oh, two thirds of the way through, it I finally I, somebody said, you know, you could go teach. And I, it was sort of like that moment when everybody's going to be a pastor. It was like, that's what we're going to be. That wasn't my plan. Um, but I thought, well, I guess I could use, I could use a job. So I went and I got a part-time job as a tutor at City College of San Francisco. And once I was in that environment, it was very clear to me, like, oh yeah, I'm super qualified to do this work and, um, you know, and I should. And so once, and I loved it, I fell in love with teaching right away. Uh, so once my MFA was finished, um, I had, you know, a nice year or so of experience um, in some programs at City College, and um, 
I joined the English faculty and I taught composition and creative writing and African-American uh, literature. Um, and I also co-ran a writing program for underserved students. Um, and I guess I will say, let me say one thing about that transition to the faculty. I fought like hell for that. Um, I think sometimes it seems from the outside like, and then you just learn this thing and so you got hired for that thing. And I remember there was this slender opening where I needed a certain set of recommendations or I needed somebody, I needed somebody's help to get this done and I needed their endorsement. And I hounded that man like a reporter on the streets of San Francisco. I was not going to let that guy go. And I did it. And I think he finally caved and hired me because um, I just wouldn't leave him alone. So hmm. I want to kind of make that point that it wasn't a particularly easy transition, but I really wanted that job and I got that job. Um, and that was cool. So then you love the teaching side. Uh, you decide to go back and do another degree, this yeah. time a master's of liberal arts. Was the goal to continue teaching or were you starting to think about new, you know, horizons at that point? No, I just, I had gotten bored. And, yeah. you know. Sure. <laughs> and was it, and, and was it partly because you were teaching the same things over and over or just more broadly you needed new horizons or both? Uh, yes to all of that. So um, I really went, whenever I'm not in school, I miss being in school. And um, so I missed my MFA program. And I felt like even though I loved, I loved the human part of teaching. I loved my students. But I found the teaching itself pretty repetitive. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in particular, the need at my college was for composition. So it was a treat for me to teach anything else. Um, I also had a couple of really difficult situations where um, I, had a, I had a student who wrote a story in creative writing class about blowing up the creative writing class. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get any help from the police or um, you know, really anybody to help me like continue teaching safely. So I started to feel like the universe is like, <laughs> time for you to get out of here. Um, and I did at one point, I started um, a doctoral program in education, but I quit pretty quickly because I felt like um, I just wasn't, I wasn't interested in the material enough to keep going with it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it, it was, I mean, it seems sort of glamorous in the past, like in the rear view mirror, it's like, oh, it all flows together and it makes sense. At the time, it felt like just sort of staggering around trying to figure out what's next because you know, I did this thing and it kind of ran its course and now um, confused. And it was actually my therapist who had been to Stanford herself. And she said, oh, you know, I think you'd love it. Um, why don't you go, um, you know, just check out, check it out. And so I went, here's another Emory connection. I went and I took a course in Irish history and literature from Bill Chase, who used to be the president of Emory. Huh. He was in fact the president of Emory when I graduated. But so I, I want to go back for a second uh, to this question of things making sense in the rearview mirror, um, because uh, so often students who come here to the hatchery to do work, they're concerned about finding the right career path 
and, and then the taking the right steps to get there. Um, and it, there's a tendency, I think, to see things uh, as a path rather than a fluid journey. Yeah. Um, clearly, I think your story and mine certainly too, and so many other people's really speak to the fluid journey side of things <laughs> rather than the path. Yeah. Um, and so um, one part of this is a comment, which is I think one of the disservices that senior professionals do to younger professionals is presenting a coherent narrative of their journey. Um, and there tends, there's a tendency to tell a strong story. Uh, and it's considered good practice to tell a strong story of how you got to your leadership role. And I think that um, that glosses over the fact that very few, few people live uh, you know, a career as a, as a straight path to success. But there's also a question in this in that um, you know, there's a moment when you have decisions to make. And um, you, know, you pointed to some of the reasons for that. Simply just boredom can be a strong motivating factor. You can, you can know intuitively whether something's a right fit or not. Um, but what are some of those criteria for you? And what have you done at moments when you found that something wasn't the right fit to, to make decisions uh, about the need for a change? That is a great question. So I think there are two things for me and they are curiosity and joy. Um, curiosity came first. Um, I Almost every career decision I made, I did because I thought it would be interesting, mm -hmm. including majoring in religion. It was just interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and it was not really until later as I kind of developed as a person and got to kind of really know and understand myself better, that I realized that if I actually follow the things that truly bring me joy, like not fun, but deep, a deep sense of joy, mm -hmm. it never goes wrong. It never leads me in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what I'm calling boredom, I think was that my curiosity wasn't being satisfied. Mm -hmm. And... I wasn't experiencing that sense of joy that I feel when I'm learning or when I'm doing something, you know, that feeling at the top of the roller coaster, mm -hmm. like we got this far and here we go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. I kind of live for that. And I think as a, you know, as a business owner, you get plenty of it. Um, but uh, so many people live these very stable lives and I look at them and I think that must be nice, but I've never, um, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> well, it's interesting you chose that metaphor because um, it's one that implies excitement and it implies that every up has a down, right? Like roller coasters don't work unless there's gravity, right? So uh, so let me, let me shift gears maybe and, and say that, you know, we, we've all heard the statistics about innovation and entrepreneurship, right? That um, as many as 90% of startups fail, that the average tenure for a chief innovation officer is less than two years, um, currently closer to one uh, last I, I saw. So success and innovation 
uh, or entrepreneurship, I would argue, is, is in large part the result of a continuous professional design process, right? And I think too often innovators and entrepreneurs focus on the, the product piece and they forget that it's a continual self-evolution as well. And so I wonder if you could maybe share a story of a time when you sort of consciously applied something you knew about innovation best practices to redesigning your career and improving your outcomes. Absolutely. Um, I think there's, there's probably a bunch, um, but I'll actually give you one that's kind of the next step in the journey that we were <laughs> bouncing along together um, earlier, which is um, making the transition from academia to Google. Hmm. So I started at Stanford. Now I was at Stanford for five years um, because it was a part-time program. So I just started with, I started with this one class that Bill Chase taught. It was a public, public um, continuing education class. And from there, I started the master's program um, with his recommendation. And, um, and that was another five years by the time, by the time I fully was graduated and, and fully done. Um, so I had a lot of time to kind of um, explore Stanford and do different things. And, and they offered, and you know, part of this was a regret I had at Emory. I was an Emory scholar and I never did anything with it. I never went to the events. I, I did nothing. And I really regret that as an adult, I see how much I missed. Um, or as an older adult, I see how much I missed. And so when I was at Stanford, I was determined I wasn't gonna miss things. So I went to the lectures and, and one of the options we had was to apply to learn design thinking at the Stanford D School. And I had no idea what that was, but it sounded creative and I knew I was a creative person. So I figured that would be cool. Uh, so I applied and I got in and um, they took me on a <laughs> wild roller coaster of a week of design thinking boot camp. Um, and it, I just fell in love with it. I absolutely, um, it, it made a lot of things click for me that I was kind of doing unconsciously or automatically um, it helped me get a structure around it and understand better what I was doing creatively. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things, you know, that you first learn in design thinking is that um, you have to do a lot of research. You, you don't do design without understanding your problem. So uh, from there, I decided that I would start going around and asking everybody I met at Stanford what I should do for a career. <laughs> And um, I would just, you know, if anybody would have lunch with me or let me come to their office or whatever, I would just talk to them and I'd say, you know, I have these skills and I'm interested in changing careers. And I don't know what that should be. What do you think? And in pretty short order, I had myself a little job at Google. Um, and I was actually part, it was part time at first. I was still teaching. Um, so that was crazy to go from this underfunded public college to yeah. all the Luna bars you could eat, you know, <laughs> on the same day. Right. And you know, the new employees, because they're the one over at the Luna bar bar, <laughs> that kind of stock and fill in their pockets. That's <laughs> <laughs> <It was> true. <laughs> right. And the, the people who've been there six months, like, oh, the Luna bars, I'm so over. Right. We've had so many. And the other thing I love is the hint water, which is, you know, that fruit flavored water. Yeah. Yeah. Supplies. Amazing. Um, um, yeah. It's funny because uh, I think people forget 
that purposeful conversation is a technique, right? That you're consciously deciding to do something when you're setting up informational interviews. And um, I think that often people will say, well, there's the purposeful path of like, I'm going to build my resume, I'm going to, and then there's the, oh, well, I'll also have, uh, you know, conversations with people and learn more. And the informational interview is, it's a, it's a technique. And uh, in my past experience, it's the one that most often results in uh, opportunities and opportunities that are good fits. Um, because yeah. it's through human connection that we really figure things out. It really is. And, um, you know, one of the amazing unanticipated benefits of the program I was in was that because it was part time, it attracted a group of people who were themselves far along in their careers. Mm -hmm. um, sure. You know, they worked at all the all the fancy um, employers in the Bay Area. They were attorneys and doctors and things like that. And so they were this rich well of information, but they were also my friends. Sure. It wasn't weird, you know, there wasn't that sort of power dynamic where you're, you're like, oh, you're, you know, you're so much older than me and so much more advanced, can I ask you how you did it? It was more like, hey, we're in the thick of these things too, and like, mm -hmm. it kind of, can you help me? And, and so having that resource and that group of people that I can draw on and, and give back to over this period of time was extremely helpful, and I think many good graduate programs <laughs> provide that, you know. So uh, going then from your role at Google, uh, and, and maybe I, I think people will be curious about what that environment is like beyond just the perks. Um, and, you know, sort of what you learned about uh, the world of innovation that you're able then to bring over to uh, your work today as the, the founder and CEO of O'Brien Group. Uh, and I definitely want to end with, uh, with a, you know, an opportunity to talk about the work you're doing now, but maybe you could fill in some of those gaps of, of what happened during that time at Google and, and, and what you learned that helped you make this transition. Sure. Well, I guess I should say, you know, I, I quit Google and got rehired in the middle of all that. So yeah. <laughs> and there's that too. Right. Yeah, it's not going to be a straight line, right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first job I was hired for, I mean, the, the title was content writer, but it was sort of like a tech writer. And I was part of an engineering organization, like sort of the guts of the organization um, doing the engineering. And um, I think there were three, three women, me, my boss, and the person who hired me. <laughs> okay. um, and it was other than that, it was like a sea of a sea of male engineers. And I remember and I had come from this environment, um, you know, not only is, is university teaching fairly pink collar, but it's a very interactive, verbally interactive environment. Mm -hmm. You know, professors love to talk to each other yeah. or about each other or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so I go in and it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's a beautiful environment and it's incredibly quiet. And it took me a few days to realize they're talking to each other constantly, but it's all on chat. Oh, okay. Um, so it was this different culture and I, you know, I'm very friendly. So I would like say hi. And these guys would just look nervous and keep walking. <laughs> um, it was, it was a, a, a very different culture for me, from anything I had experienced. And, and yet it was also three times the money. Sure. Um, and I was, I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this work. 
Um, and I found out that, you know, tech writing is different. It required asking a lot of questions. Um, but it was then that I became a design thinking facilitator for Google. Um, because Frederick Fiert, who is still the head of innovation for Google, um, was just starting his program when I got hired. And he knew, because I had, I think I posted something on a design board or something, that I had, that I had done the D-School program. And I continued to work with D-School uh, as I continued through Stanford. But he knew that. He knew I had teaching experience. And he asked if I would be uh, one of their first design thinking facilitators. Um, which was like, you know, one of those jump for joy moments. Right. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I uh, okay, I have to, right, yeah. This Frederick. <laughs> yeah, so that was one, that was amazing and um, a really good, great experience. Um, but I was on contract, so I was not full-time at that time. And um, I got another job offer from Pearson Education to be a content editor for um, an application that still is the Pearson System of Courses. It's like a, you know, it's an online teaching program. And I was, I was the 10th grade editor for English. So, uh, so that was a good gig. Um, but then the person who had like made this deal lost half, literally half a billion dollars contract so I said to myself, better get another job. Right. <laughs> and the roller coaster continues. So I applied at Google and got a full-time role as a senior content strategist. Um, and that, that was great. And so I went back to being a design thinking facilitator at Google and, and did that for three years. That was a great job. I loved my team. Um, we cleaned up online help, like you wouldn't believe. Um, really proud of the work that we did. And um, then, I just felt like it was really time for me to come back to Georgia. Huh. Um, you know, my parents are here. They're, of course, getting older. Um, one of my sisters is here and her four grown children. And, um, and I had finished all my coursework at Stanford at that point, And they said it would be fine to, to do my thesis from Atlanta. So, um, so I, I said to Google, I was like, hey, uh, I'm going to move to Atlanta. Do you want me to keep working or do you want me to quit? Um, I said it nicely, but that was, that was pretty much it. Like I knew that that was what I was going to do. Um, and <laughs> as soon, around this time, three members of my team quit. So I think that they realized they better let me work. So I managed to parlay this for a year, but ultimately this was not what they wanted. They wanted me to be in either Mountain View or Boulder, Colorado, and I didn't want to be in either place. Um, so that was kind of what launched me into starting the company. Uh, so that said, let's talk a little bit about the company because you've maintained obviously good relationships with Google. You're a partner with them in many capacities. So maybe just tell us a bit about O'Brien's group and then we wanna leave time for uh, questions from the audience too. I know there are gonna be student questions based on the career trajectory. I know that students are gonna queue up some good questions about, you know, how you've made your way. So, uh, but I'd love to hear about O'Brien Group a, a bit and some of the work you do with Google as well. Sure, sure. Well, you know, the launching point, I, 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 well, I guess I should have told you at some point that I did start some other companies along the way, but whatever. Um, right. <laughs> we don't have all day. To right. <laughs> uh, but, but this is actually my fifth company, not my first. And I think that's worth knowing. Um, yep. it, 
the, the, there are, <laughs> you don't hit it right on the first try usually. So, but I had a great opportunity because I had uh, friends at Google who knew that there were people who um, were in the education space who were very interested in design thinking. And also that um, there were not very many people who had the qualifications and experience that I did. The combination of having been an educator, um, having trained at Stanford and then having practiced at Google. Um, and they were like, look, you know, if, if that's what you want to do with your company, we're happy to send you some referrals and that kind of thing. And I thought, well, okay. And I expected it to be a really slow start because that's how it's supposed to go. Right. Right. Um, and it was not, it was not a slow start. Um, it was really busy right from the beginning. And um, I ended up partnering with Google to do um, kind of an experimental type of partnership um, where we were working with school districts on not just learning how to use Google tools, but how to use Google's transformational techniques to transform the district in the ways that they wanted to. Um, and so, you know, right group, um, my team and I would go in and we would um, do kind of customize these design programs for school districts and help them. Um, kind of design what they wanted their district to be like, which was incredibly satisfying work. And in a pre-COVID world, it was in person. So it was, right. it was um, quite a bit to run around like that. And, um, and yet very satisfying. Uh, we soon branched into working with corporations. Um, we worked with um, one of the big Fortune 500s here to develop an internal design community of practice for them. Um, just a lot of interesting opportunities kind of all uh, coming our way at the same time and um, kind of navigating that uh, with the team. And of course, I'm new to being a, a CEO <laughs> and business owner. So I had to learn everything. I didn't know what a statement of work was when I started. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have an attorney. I didn't have an accountant. I didn't, you know, there's just a million infrastructure things that you don't know until you need them. And you find that out. And so, um, so yeah, uh, uh, we actually continue to do that work. I did a really interesting project with a school, big school district recently on designing education for the post COVID world, um, trying to figure out what is their school system going to do to support teachers and students, you know, when this ends, because it is going to end and life is not going back to normal. And, um, so, so I love doing that kind of work that I always do those myself, <laughs> even though I have a team, I'll do those myself because I love that. Um, and, you know, we, we made the switch to virtual. It's gone fine um, and it has a lot of advantages, one of which is I'm not as tired. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Great point. Um, <laughs> So at this point, I would like to actually ask folks to start um, typing any questions they have uh, for Quinn in the chat. Uh, and I'm going to just ask one more while they do that, uh, which is um, beyond the work that you're still doing, uh, you know, the, the really interesting and impactful work of the O'Brien Group, um, what problem do you still want to solve? Or maybe to put it in a, a different way, how do you still want to use innovation to make the world better? Okay. So you're probably not going to be too surprised to find out that I went ahead and started another business. Okay. Okay. No, I'm not. No. 
Now, I know I was going to say I might be surprised by the nature of the business, but no, no, that, that's not true either. <laughs> you know, you may have just found the solution for really scaling sales of glitter spray, for all I know, uh, or holding guys named Dexter accountable. And I would believe any of these things at this point. So, <laughs> well, the, um, the, the uh, new company, it's called Echo Enterprises. It's, it's, um, it's just a separate LLC, but with, within that umbrella, I'm developing a series of courses. And the first one is called Joy-Based Business. Hmm. And I have the URL so you can, people can look at it. It's joybasedbusiness.com. Um, I think there are much better ways to do business based on those themes of curiosity and joy. This is not how business owners are taught to think about our companies or to think about our work. But when you do, it really, as I kind of said before, it doesn't go wrong. Um, and so I got really inspired and I had some time on my hands during some of the COVID uh, moments because everybody kind of took a big pause um, earlier in the year and I had some time and I started to reflect on um, what, it, what it means to me to, to have a joy-based business. And I, I just kind of naturally began to create a program and a course on that. And um, so I think, I think my best contributions are probably yet to come because I feel that this, um, this theme of thinking about joy as a compass is something that I'm going to be developing over a number of years. It feels like a very rich vein for me. And also like uh, something that I learned on my own through all the insanity that I've just described to you of my own career. Um, there was no straight line and, but there was a path. Hmm. But you don't see how, you don't know, you don't know what's down the road, but you can see like this far ahead and this far ahead by kind of following that compass. And um, so I think I would love to innovate around how we, how we think about how we lead and even how we operate organizations. Hmm. Um, I've spent a lot of time working with, or with big organizations on you know, it's not just that we want to design great products and services, but we want to design um, a, an experience for a group of humans working here who mm -hmm. can naturally begin to create, do human-centered work, mm -hmm. which for Shannon knows, but some people may not realize that's the other term for, uh, for design thinking. Yeah. Um, and when, when we can do that, um, it starts to really change the world. So I will, I think it's like, I don't know exactly uh, where I'm going to go for, far down the road, but in the near future, I think continuing to, um, to grow and savor and enjoy O'Brien Group and the work that we get to do um, and, and expand that and um, add in this new vein of thinking that is uh, kind of calling to me. Um, the, yeah, those are, those are the next things. Uh, yeah, and uh, to your point, th those don't sound mutually exclusive. Uh, it sounds like a new vein 
uh, yeah. what you're doing and uh, a way to sort of inject that and then, um, you know, kind of see if it grows into something more substantial within the practice. So we've got one good question from the audience, which is that, uh, you know, change is hard and selling people on change can be really hard. So how do you sell change to organizations? Oh, that's a good question, yes. Well, um, you know, change does come to them whether they like it or not. Um, and a lot of times when I get involved, it is because they know they need to make a change. It's clear that what has been is not working but it's not clear what would work better. Mm -hmm. um, so I have, I don't know that I've ever had to persuade someone of making a change. It's more that they come to me in a panic and tell me this isn't working and we don't know what to do next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I help them design something that would work better using those techniques of, of human-centered design. Um, I will say, I think, once people have a sense that there is a process for making change and that there are, you know, design thinking has five phases. You can count it as six if you want, but mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a container around it. Mm -hmm. That calms people down a bit. Um, change is terrifying. Yeah. But, you know, knowing that there's a, we have this process that we use and it just helps us kind of, you know, there's nothing new in design thinking. Mm -hmm. It's a mishmash of, practices and fields and methods, but when we use it, it helps. And, and that tends to help people calm down enough that they can actually make really good change, mm -hmm. uh, which is my company's tagline, let's make good change, um, as opposed to uh, let's run in terror until we hit a wall, <laughs> which... <laughs> well, <laughs> and you've put your finger on something too, which is the advantage of being an external consultant versus an internal entrepreneur in a situation like this. There is a different challenge to selling change from within um, versus stepping in at the, the moment that the patient realizes they have a, uh, a disease. <laughs> that they need exactly. to help them, you know, cure. So um, here's another great question. So first of all, this person said, thanks for the great and encouraging talk. You mentioned thinking deeply and reading, writing uh, well as important skills you cultivated through your humanities training that have served you really well in your professional development. I'm curious if you think there is something distinctive about your approach to working with clients of the O'Brien group that you can credit to your humanities training. It's not the reading and writing though, it's the focus on people. Mm -hmm. um, I have spent a lot of time trying to understand people. And I remember I had a, a religion professor when I was, I was thinking about majoring in religion and he was my professor at that time. And I said, well, you know, why is this important? And he said, it's important because religion is what makes a lot of people tick. Mm -hmm. And that hit home for me um, and, and really, Kind of sealed my interest in it that it's mm -hmm. what makes people tick and all of my study of um in the humanities and notice i have all arts degrees <laughs> every single one um but all of my studies have helped me think about human problems and experiences and approaches and what's worked and what hasn't um and i've never for a moment lost interest in those things so um, so all those things, all that comes together. On the reading and writing front, you know, I think 
there's some very practical things. One is it is really helpful when you when you're running a company um, or I mean doing almost anything, but you run a company. There's a huge volume of information that you have to somehow process, and also a huge volume of, of information you need to communicate, whether it's to your clients, to your team. Um, to the kind of infrastructure staff who are helping make sure everything runs smoothly for you. And um, I have just seen over time the fact that I can read a sheet of paper pretty quickly, um, understand what it said and respond um, without having to spend time laboring over it, that I can put together a slide presentation very quickly. I can um, jot down an email and be satisfied with it and send it. Um, those kind of simple sounding skills have saved me probably years of my life at this point. Um, so that's all been incredibly useful. I wouldn't trade it for anything. That is interesting. Um, we received one more really good question here, which Whoa. is uh, what are some design thinking strategies you use generally in your day-to-day -day work that you think are applicable to students? Every single one of them. Um, Okay, but let me, let me narrow this down. <laughs> well, I think the concept of prototyping is a helpful one. Um, so what that means, you know, uh, prototyping can mean different things in different professions. So it's important to define our terms on that one. But a prototype in design thinking is um, a way to quickly, cheaply, easily test out an idea to get a little bit more information about it. Mm -hmm. And um, you want to put as little time, effort, energy, money, et cetera, into your prototypes as you can to learn um, the thing that you want to learn. Mm -hmm. So I think for students, like, um, you know, going to say, I'm going to go to law school, that's a huge commitment. That's not a prototype. That's like a whole, you've done the whole thing at this point. But if you find ways to prototype it um, and think about what are the questions that you have, like um, the obvious prototype is we'll go sit in some classes. Well, you might already pretty much know how you feel about sitting in a lecture, but you might not know how you feel about spending uh, a day doing the tasks that an attorney does. So you might actually set up a day where you pretend to be a lawyer. Hmm. Why not? Get yourself a desk, get yourself an outfit, get yourself a big pile of paper and see how fun it is. <laughs> are you enjoying this or are you not? Um, you can come up with fun, creative uh, ways to test out the things that you don't know, but you want to understand, what do I not know here? What's, the, what's Where's my information gap? And then create ways to test your information gap before you make the big leap and go to the top of the roller coaster. And that way, when you go there, you'll have a little more confidence and you might save yourself um, a whole lot of time, heartbreak, et cetera, um, by trying a few things out without actually you know, going into a whole hog. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to respond to that by saying uh, my wife is going to wish that I had spoken with you many, many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> had somebody told me that I could create MVPs for testing out a career for a day, it would have saved us cross-country moves, career changes, and lots of other things. So um, it, this has been a ton of fun. I really appreciate that, um, that you've put the human and the humanities back uh, in, in human-centered design today. Um, and so um, 
Everyone who's on this, uh, I see in the chat is, is leaving thank you notes and asking if um, possibly they could get contact info. So, um, you know, we can, we can follow up and provide that. Um, but I, I just want to say that I really had fun talking with you today. Um, on a personal note, and this one sounds like it's, you know, once the, the world uh, reopens uh, over, over a beer instead of, uh, you know, with, on Zoom because it could go on all day. I'll say that this was fun for me partly because we have similar journeys, uh, you know, humanities backgrounds, we've gone through many career changes, we've both been creative writers, we've ended up in innovation, um, but also because you hit on so many of the questions that students often ask and I think um, provided a great model uh, for, for being flexible and nonlinear. Um, uh, in, in, you know, creating a path forward. So uh, thank you very much for, for doing this. And uh, it's such a pleasure. You were a fantastic interviewer. I knew, I knew that would be true, but. Um, oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Really well, uh, so I hope we can get you involved once we uh, we're really open again for, for programming, uh, get you back over to the hatchery and uh, uh, get you involved with students who are working through some of these same uh, processes. I would love that. Absolutely. All right. Yes. Great. We'll be in touch. All right. Thanks so much, Quinn. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.